Seth uh, is coughing and hacking a lot, and he texted me this afternoon and asked if I might be available to preach this evening, and I asked him, do I have to wear a tie? (laughs) He said no, and I said, I'll do it. (laughs) That's not exactly how it came down. I actually said yes before I asked him about the tie, but (laughs) preach is better that way. Uh, I'd like to speak to you about worship this evening, big surprise, Uh, from from John chapter 4 where the Lord Jesus himself teaches on worship. But before we get to that passage, we're going to start a little bit earlier in John chapter 4, with verse 3. The old covenant was a covenant of barriers between God and the people. You remember the structure of the tabernacle, how the people had to stand outside in the courtyard and only the priests could go into the holy place and offer their sacrifices. And then you had the Holy of Holies, and only the high priest could go in there one day a year, of course, on the Day of Atonement, with the sacrifice on behalf of all the people. And that's the Holy of Holies, which symbolized the presence of God in the midst of his people, filled filled with God's glory once the tabernacle was completed, and later the temple, the same way, once it was completed. And the idea was that God is so holy that because of sin, the people couldn't come close. They had to stay far away. And in fact, the Old Testament model, the people watched worship. They didn't do worship. They watched it. Only the priests did it. And so that's what's so significant about the Lord Jesus when he died on the cross, when we read in the Gospels that the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That's the veil blocking the way into the Holy of Holies uh, in the temple. And that was torn in two, signifying that the Lord Jesus had removed the barrier of sin and opened that free access into the very presence of God that all all of us enjoy because of the blood of Jesus. Jesus has removed that barrier. Jesus removed lots of barriers, and we're going to see several of them here in John chapter 4. So look first at verse 3, 3 and 4. Let me read those for you. Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now, you picture the holy map, holy land. We don't have a map here, but Judea was in the south. Galilee was in the north, and in between, sandwiched in between, was Samaria. And as you may remember, the Jews detested the Samaritans. They hated them, first of all, because they were half-breeds. Jews had intermarried with Gentiles, so they weren't pure-blooded Jews. And they rejected most of the Old Testament, accepted only the five books of Moses. And as we'll see in this passage, they set up their own system of worship on Mount Gerizim instead of in Jerusalem as God had commanded. So for these reasons, all of these reasons, they were detested by the Jews, hence the parable of the Good Samaritan, where it's the detested one who's the one who steps up and does good. That's why Jesus makes that such a jarring example uh, in his parable there. But we read here that he left Judea and parted again for Galilee. Now, your average Jew uh, hated the Samaritans so much that when he had to go from Judea in the south, to Galilee in the north, he would actually go east and cross the Jordan River, if you can picture that, go up the other side, and then cross back over into Galilee. So he wouldn't have to go through Samaritan territory. 
They didn't want to have anything to do with the Samaritans. And so that's what Jews normally did. And that's what makes this so surprising here in these passages, that Jesus left Judea, departed for Galilee, and it says he had to pass through Samaria. Well, in a sense, he didn't have to, because no one else did. They'd cross over and go up the other side. But I think what John is intimating to us here is that Jesus had to pass through Samaria because the Father had work for him to do there. The Father had a ministry for him there. So Jesus breaks down the geographical barriers, that barrier that said, uh-uh, I can't go that way. He says, I don't care about that. I have ministry to do there. The Father is sending me there. And so he passes through Samaria. Then we read that Jesus is going to break down some social barriers as well. Starting in verse 5, he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews, as we've seen before, have no dealings with Samaritans. So the woman is himself is shocked at Jesus' approach, his address to her. Because, first of all, a man wouldn't normally talk to a woman in public to begin with, much less a Samaritan woman. And uh, so she herself is surprised. But again, Jesus breaks down social barriers. He does that all the time. He, he eats with tax collectors and sinners. He doesn't care about these artificial social barriers that the people have set up. Because he saw her as a person. He wanted to minister to her as a person. So he breaks down that social barrier and speaks to the woman in public, the Samaritan. Then we see that he seeks to break down spiritual barriers in her life as well. Look at verses 10 through 15. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So she doesn't quite understand. She's thinking water, physical water. That's what she's come to do. That's what she wants. She wants to be relieved of this daily burden. Uh, but Jesus uh, sees her spiritual need. He wants to break down the spiritual barrier and show her the true need of her heart, which is for the living water, which he, and, uh, he alone can offer her. Finally, Jesus is going to break down religious barriers, the barriers separating Jew and Samaritan. 
as we see, and now we get to the crux of the pattern of the passage where Jesus is going to teach us about worship. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you, you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, that's Mount Gerizim, in Samaria. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you. Am he. So he tells the woman to call her husband. She says, I have no husband. He says, you're right. You've had five before, and the man you're with now is not your husband. And the woman, we're not told exactly in 19 whether the woman, maybe she just would like to change the subject from uh, away from talking about her personal life, or maybe because of his insight into her life, as really a nagging spiritual question that, that she's been carrying with her for a while and really wants to know from Jesus. But one way or the other, she in essence is asking a question about worship. So she says in verse 20, Our fathers worship on this mountain, Mount Gerizim in Samaria. You Jews worship in Jerusalem. In essence, she's saying, which is right? You do it, we do it this way, you do it that way. Which is right? And Jesus, as so often he does, he answers a question in an unexpected way. In fact, I read somewhere, it says, when Jesus answers questions in an unexpected way, it's because he's, he's the only one who really knows what the questions are. <laughs> what the important questions are. So in essence, he's saying, She's asking, in this mountain or in this one? Basically, he's saying, neither. (laughs) Time is coming, now here. Neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Jesus is saying, I'm changing the rules. (laughs) In fact, he uses the same preposition. Neither in this mountain or in Jerusalem, but he says, worship must be in spirit and in truth. He seemed to be saying it's no longer a matter of where or when you worship, but how you worship. The true spiritual essence of worship. And he says that must be worship in spirit and in truth. He says that in verse 23...
you worship, uh, I'm sorry, uh, verse, yeah, verse 23, the hour is coming is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And the next verse again, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So let's unpack that for a moment. Worship in spirit and in truth. Worship in spirit, most of our translations, the ESV and many others, I think will have spirit, small s there. Anybody have a big capital S in their translation? When he talks about spirit and truth, Richard does, okay. So there's some debate about whether it's talking about the Holy Spirit, and worship is surely energized by the Holy Spirit, but it also can mean, and obviously the translators here, and I think the better understanding is that worship in spirit means talking about the immaterial part of us, the inside of us, that true worship must begin on the inside, in our hearts, must be genuine and sincere and come from the inside out. I think that's supported by the fact in verse 24, Jesus says, God is spirit. And therefore, those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. He's, in other words, he's a spiritual being. So we must connect with him on a spiritual level. And as he's saying, it's not so long, no longer so much a matter of where or when you worship or the external things that are more important, but actual, actually the internal reality. Worship in spirit from the inside out. Which is an important emphasis. Um, even in the Old Testament, because God always places priority on the heart of worship. And that's been stated actually in our worship statement that the elders put together here. We can worship in different styles and in different ways with different music because the essence, the important essence, what are you doing back? Back. He's back. Welcome. She didn't. You didn't leave her. In, you didn't leave her in Orlando, did you? No. Okay. Okay. We we flew in from Baltimore Monday morning, and uh, on Southwest, and got off the airplane, and there they were waiting to get on the same plane to go off to Orlando. So that was really sweet. Um, so worship in spirit, always God's priority. Yeah, in the Old Testament prophets, uh, you have times where God says to the people, I hate your sacrifices and your feasts. The very sacrifices and feasts which he had commanded them to do, he said he despised because they weren't a genuine expression of the heart. They were going through the external motions. God hates externality. C.S. Lewis says, it's not as if God needed the blood of bulls and goats, but he wanted the expression of the heart expressing itself through the sacrifice. Jesus often railed, as you know, against the Pharisees because of the external nature uh, of their worship, as we'll see um, in just a moment. And so, worship in spirit, in essence, there's this contained, this subtle dig against the Jews because it made God and Jesus so mad because they would go through the motions. They would do things to be seen. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, they fast to be seen. They pray to be seen. They want to be noticed uh, that they're being spiritual and um, and the, the Pharisee and the tax collector in the temple, Jesus sees, and the Pharisee saying, thanks God that I'm so great, and the tax collector can't even look to heaven. And Jesus says, this man left justified rather than the other. 
Jesus called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs because they look great on the outside, but rotten on the inside. God hates external religion without any internal reality. External expressions of worship are great when the internal expression is there first and foremost. So Jesus is saying true worship must begin on the inside, must be genuine and sincere. But not just the, not just worship in spirit, but worship in truth. Worship must be according to God's revelation, according to God's way. Worship is about God, worship's for God. We look to God's word to tell us who God is, the God we worship, and what God wants from us in our worship. Worship must be according to God's revelation, according to God's truth, and ultimately that means, of course, must be through Jesus Christ, who himself is the truth. Again, this may be a a subtle criticism, or maybe not so subtle criticism, of the Samaritans, because they rejected most of the Old Testament, they rejected the God's revelation, and they set up a system of worship on Mount Gerizim, not in Jerusalem, where God had commanded. And that's why Jesus says in verse 22 to the woman, he says, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. You're trying to do it, but it's not according to God's revelation of himself. It's not a true response to what God has shown. We worship, Jesus says, we worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. So at least they were following God's revelation in that way, though, again, the external nature of much of their worship often got in the way. So Jesus is saying both of these things are necessary. Worship must be in spirit, must be genuine and sincere and from the heart out. And worship must be God's way, according to God's truth, God's revelation. And he's saying both of these things were important. Not just one or the other, but both. Because, you know, there are people in our world, as you're well aware, who are very sincere and devoted in their religious practices. Suicide bombers are obviously extremely committed to their cause. And they think that blowing up innocent men, women, and children is an act of worship to God. And of course, a millisecond after they blow themselves up too, they find out how horribly mistaken they were. They're sincere and committed, but it's not according to God's truth, not according to God's revelation. And we also know people who are perhaps nominal Christians or denominations or churches, and it's not up to us to judge, but they're they're people who may have a veneer of Christianity or go to church or say the creeds or whatnot, but where we might doubt that there's a genuine heart faith uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's an external veneer without the internal reality. Jesus says both of those things are necessary must be genuine and sincere from the inside out and must be according to God's revelation, God's way as well. So spirit and truth. Jesus says, in essence, it's not so much where or when you worship anymore, but how you worship, that worship has these characteristics. And, you know, I think the if you'll keep your finger in John 4 and turn over to Romans 12 for a moment... 
Because Paul takes this understanding, I think, and builds on it. He says, well, if worship's not so much where or when, but how, then worship can be any place and any time, can it? And that's what he, in fact, says in Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, that is, your whole lives, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. All of life is worship. All of life is an appropriate response to God because... Paul says it because of the mercies of God. He's been talking about the mercies of God for 11 chapters through Romans. And when he gets to chapter 12, he says, therefore, here's the application. Because God has done all that for us by his mercies. The appropriate application, the appropriate response is to offer our bodies, our whole lives, as living sacrifices of worship. Anytime, any place. Paul says in Romans 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. So there's not a sacred and a secular part of our lives. We don't put our faith on the shelf and go do our thing the rest of the week. But rather, that faith is to be lived out as a life and lifestyle of worship. When we're not only here at church, but at home with our families, with our friends, at work, everywhere we go. It's to be walking with the life of worship because it's not so matter so much a matter of time or place anymore, but that be worship in spirit and truth, genuine and according to God's revelation. So it's all of life. First Corinthians six twenty says, You have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. So God has done this, and this is what we're supposed to do with it. That's what he's saying here in 12.1.2. God has done all this for you in Christ. This is what you do with it. You offer it back to God in a grateful life of worship in all of its essence. This is the broadest understanding of worship that goes through all of life. And um, when when I'm teaching pastoral students and whatnot, I, I encourage them to remind their people this when they go out into ministry that it's not up to the professionals at First of Ann or other churches to provide all the worship for you every week. That the pattern for a healthy Christian is to be walking a life and lifestyle of worship all through the week. And then come not with an empty tank to be filled up again for the week, but rather with a heart full of walking with God and what it means to be his servant and his disciple. And then we join our hearts together and our voices together, something more than the sum of the parts. We come out of that life uh, and lifestyle of worship. And by the way, Jesus is Jesus and Paul not saying that there are no longer any sacred times or sacred places, but what he's saying is every time and every place is sacred to the Lord. It all belongs to him, all of life. So Paul takes Jesus' understanding neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem, but in spirit and in truth, and that that radical internalizing of the whole dynamic of, of worship, even more intensely than in the Old Testament, that Paul builds on and says, here's what it is. This this is has implications for your whole life, all of life 
is to be an act, a walk of worship. All our service, all our giving, all our work as we're hearing, hearing about this morning in the workplace or whatnot, it's all to be offered up as responses of worship to God. Now, if you still have your finger in John 4, let's go back just for one moment to show you one more thing that I think is really important as well. John 4.23 But the hour is coming, Jesus says, and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. The Father is seeking worshipers. Sometimes I teach young students or like gap year students almost between high school and college and, and other young people are kind of wondering, they're getting some Bible training, but they don't know how God's going to lead them, what he's going to do with them in their lives, what God's will is for their lives. I love to show them this, this verse and tell them, this is God's will for your life. <laughs> he wants you to be a worshiper. Jesus never said, the Father is seeking pastors. Jesus never said the Father is seeking missionaries. Jesus never said the Father is seeking Christian businessmen and women or housewives or whatever. Jesus said the Father is seeking worshipers. That's what he wants first and foremost from each of us. That vertical relationship Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all the rest will be added. So if you have concerns, struggles in your life, go to the Lord first. That's the first thing, that vertical relationship, that walk with him. And God will lead you and guide you into the other things, into places of service, in meeting of needs, and whatnot, first and foremost. Amy Carmichael, the great missionary pioneer to India in the 19th century, on her mission compound once, they built a new chapel. And the chapel was built so that there was a large steeple at the front and a smaller steeple at the back. And somebody asked her about the steeples, why they were built that way. And she said, that is to always remind us that worship must precede service. First things first. Seek first the kingdom of God and the rest will be added. If we try to minister in our own strength without keeping that vertical relationship strong, we'll run out out of fuel really, really quickly. So first things first. As Paul said in Romans 12, we offer our bodies as living and holy sacrifice. So worship in spirit and truth. Worship is all of life. And that's what God wants from us. That's, as it says, and let me show you one more verse since we have time. In 2 Corinthians 1.20, Paul says the same thing in a slightly different way. It's beautiful. 2 Corinthians 1.20. Paul's writing his second letter to the Corinthians, and apparently he was going to visit them a second time. As you remember, he had a kind of an interesting love-hate relationship. Not hate, but 
he, he loved them and their commitment to Christ, but in the first letter he has to call them on some moral issues and worship issues and unity issues and whatnot. And he was going to come back to them. For some reason, apparently, he's prevented from doing so, for some reason that we're not told. So verse 15, because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. And then apparently it seems like there were people in the church that were criticizing Paul that he didn't come. Like he's vacillating. He said he was going to come. He didn't come. He can't be depended on and whatnot. So they took opportunity to, uh, they were opponents of his, took opportunity to criticize him. And Paul's saying, so he defends, was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no, at the same time? He says, that's not the way I work. He's defending himself as the messenger because... Primarily, he does that because he's wanting to defend the message which he had brought to them. That's what he says in 18. As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. There is no vacillation in the gospel message, which I, he says in 19, I and Sylvanus and Timothy, we proclaim that message to you. It was not yes and no. But in him, in Christ, it is always yes. And this is what I want you to see in verse 20 then, where Paul says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. Jesus Christ is God's yes to us. When we come to Christ in faith, God never says, well, let me think about it. Or maybe, maybe I'll let you in. No. He says in Christ, yes. Yes to all his promises. All that he has promised for us, for the human race, are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus is God's yes to us. His eternal yes, our eternally secure yes, is found in Jesus Christ. And then Paul says, that is why it is through him, through Christ, that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Sometimes I preach just that verse as a sermon because it's a, it's a two-point sermon that everybody can remember. I can even say it in different languages when I have to when I preach in other places. The two-point sermon is God says yes and all that's left for us to do is say amen in response. Because Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. All of our Christian life and walk and service and worship and giving are just ways of saying amen to God because he has said yes to us in Jesus Christ. See, worship's not a work. We don't do it to accomplish anything or to gain any status with God. It's a grateful response because he's given it all to us. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, because the Father is seeking worshipers. That's what he wants for us. I have a, a children's book I, I often share uh, with my classes because it's, it's, it's so succinct and to the point and summarizes so many of the points I make in the teaching. And the title is Worship Our Gift to God. It's what he wants. It's the only thing he wants back for us for all the gifts he's lavished upon us in the Lord Jesus. He wants our worship. He made us to worship him and 
A.W. Tozier even made the statement, why did Christ come? Why was he born? Why did he live on earth? Why did he die? Why was he crucified? Why was he, why did he rise again and return to the Father's right hand? And he says, the answer is in order to make worshipers out of rebels. To return us again to the position of worship we had when we were first created. He made us to be worshipers. That's what he wants. That's what we offer to him. Not coming cringingly, but as Hebrews 10 said, we come with confidence and with assurance because Jesus has opened the way for us. He's done everything necessary. And because of our total acceptance before the Father, because of the mercies of God, Paul says in Romans 12, we offer our bodies, our whole lives to God as appropriate responses, as spiritual sacrifices of worship. That's what he wants, first and foremost, from each one of us. He wants, first of all, your worship. The Father is seeking worshipers, those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Let's pray together. Take a moment, if you would, and just silently to respond to that that principle of our need to keep the vertical first in our lives and to take time to return to him praises for all that he does, does for us. Take a moment and think that through in your own life and heart. Father, thank you that Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Thank you for the mercies lavished upon us in the Lord Jesus. We would respond with hearts of worship, with lives of worship, with walks of worship, for seeking first the kingdom of God and trusting you for the rest. Thank you for the Holy Spirit you've given to guide us and to help us, even in our responses of worship. May our lives be offerings of worship out of a deep gratitude because you have done everything necessary for our salvation. And we stand eternally in your grand yes, which you have given to us in the Lord Jesus. And so we say amen with our lives, with our hearts, with our walks, with our service, with our worship. Amen for your great yes to us. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.